So welcome to the Reconfigured Podcast. My name is Hamad Kalaji. I'm an AWS Community Builder and Software Engineer at Zero and One. Today, I'm fortunate enough to be with Rawad. Rawad, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you, Mohammed. Pleasure uh, to be with you here on this podcast today. Uh, so obviously, my name is Rawad Asaf. I'm a professional software developer and consultant. Uh, I have around like 15 or 16 years of experience working in the software industry, both in corporate and startup environments. So I really look forward to enjoying the discussion here with you today and to share my experience as much as possible. So you're one of the founding members of a company called Rams Services. When did you realize it is time to move towards starting a startup or a company? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very good question. I, I'm not sure there's an exact timing where I kind of came to the realization, but I would say that it's a mix between uh, experience and uh, having enough uh, appetite for risk, right? So obviously you need the experience as a foundation for you to be able to do your own startup because you would have something valuable to offer to people. And on the other side, I think in the early days I was less and less uh, willing to take the risk associated and the instability uh, that can come along with a startup environment. And as I kind of... Uh, been exposed more and more to people who've been there and done that and I've been uh, kind of working alongside other entrepreneurs, I became more and more comfortable with risk. So eventually I felt that I'm ready for it, right? And uh, with the right uh, opportunity and the right timing, uh, all the elements combined together pushed in the direction of starting Rams with uh, my co-founders. So since you're a founding partner at your company, you do have other partners in Rams who are Makram and Mazen. Yeah. What did you find in your partners that made you collaborate with them into founding your company? Yeah, uh, clearly there are a lot of uh, important elements in a partnership. Um, some of them are specific to the context of Rams, but some of them also apply to any successful partnership in the world. I think uh, the most important one would be trust, obviously. Uh, there should be blind trust between the partners, trust that they're going to give the 100% and be heartfully committed to the company on the long term and to the success of the, of the business on the long term. And I think this is a foundational element. Um, more specifically for Rams, all three partners have uh, operational involvement. So it's not a partnership in the sense some are investing and others are managing. It's more like all three of us uh, are involved in the delivery of projects for the company. So it was very important to be aligned on the culture we want to, crea to create. Uh, and I think we spent a lot of we spent a lot of time at the beginning to try to. Uh, formalize uh, the culture that we want to be working in, uh, each of us and all three of us together within the company. And it is also equally important to, uh, to have a coherent view of what that culture would look like and uh, how to communicate it to the rest of the team that be working uh, with us. So this is also a second uh, element and that is alignment on, uh, on culture. The third and the last element would be probably the, the level of expertise and the complementarity of the skills, right? So uh, each of us three has 
I would say, um, a very deep experience in a certain area. Uh, whenever they speak of a certain topic and they make a certain judgment or decision, uh, it comes from experience and it comes from uh, a certain uh, level of uh, exposure to use cases and practice. So uh, uh, I think uh, there is a certain level of expertise that is uh, ensured across all three of us, but also the expertise is very diverse. So uh, the people who work with us feel that there is a certain complementarity uh, in the skills. Um, uh, they feel that each of us comes with a certain uh, angle uh, that kind of complements uh, the rest uh, of the angles that are covered by, by the rest uh, of the founders. So uh, I think the complementarity element is also uh, something that uh, I looked forward to when we were starting the company because I felt that I'm not bringing uh, one piece that is replicatable. I'm bringing something that is unique and that combines together uh, nicely with the rest of the ex experiences available in the founding team. So speaking of culture, and I've known you for like three years, one of the things that catch my attention is that Rams utilize closure as the programming language of choice and yeah. used for almost everything in web, mobile, using, let's say, closure script for writing React Native applications. It's just the thing that I want to ask, what's so special about closure that made you go towards this step? I mean, uh, we receive this question a lot from multiple clients, like a lot of our clients, specifically those who know enough about programming languages and technology, uh, would say, oh, closure, we didn't expect that. Uh, sometimes it's, it comes with a certain, I would say, uh, worry. Sometimes it comes with a certain level of, like, you know, being impressed with the, with the choice. Um, I, I personally uh, wasn't aware of the existence of Clojure before I met uh, with Makram. Makram, who introduced me to the language. I come more from a Java development background. But the good thing is that uh, Clojure is initially built on top of Java, but now there's also Clojure script and other flavors of, uh, of the language as well. And uh, with time, I came more and more appreciative of the technical characteristics of, uh, of the language. Uh, things like functional programming and immutability. I'm not going to spend a lot of time speaking about the technical characteristics of the choice because I, I think this is a topic that can require a, a dedicated session of its own. However, I think there are some, uh, I would say, philosophical cons considerations as well regarding the choice of the language. And I'll explain myself a bit more in that area. Um, one of the elements of our culture at Rams is that whenever we recruit uh, software developers or any member of the team, uh, we like them to be comfortable uh, working with any programming language, right? Uh, as a software engineer, we should uh, be comfortable switching between programming languages because at the end of the day, the programming language is the way uh, or the tool we're going to use to express our solutions, but they are not the end uh, in themselves. So when you come and say, okay, we're going to recruit you for a software developer position at Rams and we're using Clojure, we don't expect any of the people that we are interviewing to know Clojure. So this kind of puts everyone at the same level. Like they are all equal vis-a-vis -vis the, the recruitment process. And the focus during the recruitment process is, do you know how to solve problems, right? Like can you think in abstract terms 
on how I can find a solution for a specific uh, problem using the, the technical tools that we have. And by technical tools, I don't mean the language. It's more the fundamentals of computer science, which is algorithmic thinking, uh, data structures, the things that are universal and that are not specific for any programming uh, language. This is one important element, which is the focus of the company on uh, people who are able to solve problems and not on people who are just like driven by, uh, by uh, the programming language itself. Uh, so this, in comparison with other environments, is unique, right? So uh, if you're applying for another company and the requirement is for a Java developer, obviously a C-sharp or a Python developer doesn't have necessarily the same chance of getting the job or although they may be equally good it's just that the the person who has experience in java would probably get that seat because they've been exposed more to the internals of the language and i think this is the difference between our, our way of looking at uh, the recruitment on the programming language part uh, in comparison with other companies now the second element uh, in the choice of the language is developer satisfaction um, I kind of follow the, the reports year on year and see the level of satisfaction of developers uh, in specific uh, programming languages and I've been noticing year on year that there's a maintained level of satisfaction in the closure community, right? And uh, most of the developers who get used to working with closure and who kind of overcome the initial barrier in, in terms of learning end up enjoying the language and uh, trying to do more with it and even bring more projects to, to that ecosystem. And uh, it's something that is quite unique because I've worked in other programming languages and usually the pattern you would see is that with time there is a certain decline in the level of satisfaction expressed by the developer. In Clojure it feels like you're kind of in an environment where people are so excited about uh, working in the ecosystem of closure uh, on the long term. So this is also a, one element in the choice uh, of closure. And, and finally, uh, I think there's a certain culture in the closure community that we connect with, right? Which is the stability of the ecosystem, right? Um, and that is also something that uh, I see other communities struggle with. Like if you're following other uh, development uh, ecosystems, you would notice that there are a lot of things that come and go, certain things that become more trending in a certain period, but then uh, eventually are like, you know, left off by their original uh, uh, maintainers. And, and it becomes kind of um, uh, an annoying pattern with time, coupled with a certain level of fatigue in trying to keep up with all the things that are coming and going, right? In closure, I think the, the mindset of the culture, uh, the mindset of the community is to try to build something that can test, that can uh, survive the test of time, something that is universally valid for the long term. And uh, this is quite, I think, interesting and unique because you would know that a lot of thought has been put behind a certain project in closure so that this project becomes something that can live with time and this is I think also one element that makes working within this ecosystem also joyful because you don't feel that you're always like kind of on, on chasing the latest trend. You're more trying to embrace the, 
the culture of trying to use universally uh, kind of available concepts and trying to think clearly how we can use those concepts in providing a solution uh, for a specific problem. So these are the three elements. So if I want to recap them, so I would say there is also like the culture of RAMs of trying to bring people who are comfortable switching in programming languages, uh, and second of all, the, uh, the developer satisfaction, and third is the stability of the closure ecosystem. So speaking of solving problems, you were also the CTO of UK Tech Hub Lebanon, which was a tech hub for hosting startups and accelerating them through their own program. There are startups that started out without any technical background, uh, nor technical founders whom you have helped towards achieving their requirements to secure funding with investors. One example is, I actually am going to give an example of a company that I used to work with, a startup called Jalisa, the babysitting app. Uh, what are the common and least common issues that startups face with when trying to develop their own solution? Yes, very good question. Um, yeah, I, I think yeah, this is where we initially met, uh, Muhammad. It was in that uh, in that context, and uh, clearly there are a lot of uh, challenges uh, that startups uh, face in their in their uh, journey. And early stage startups have. Uh, I would say more, I would say dynamic kind of uh, uh, challenges and um, the focus I think of your question is more on the technical side so I'm not going to talk a lot about uh, the reasons behind failures on the business and uh, you know the market uh, side of things. More on the technical side I would say the most uh, uh, common issue uh, I think is probably the gap uh, that exists between the business roles within the startup and the technical roles within the startup, right? Um, so if I look at the CEOs of early stage startup, I see a lot of excitement to build things that are, um, you know, perfect, uh, that are so polished and uh, look good from the very uh, first moment. And I look on the technical uh, side of the startup, I see a person who's struggling to build one feature, right? And between uh, both uh, worlds, there is some uh, distance and some barriers to be built in order to align the language between both sides, right? Um, I think that the CEOs should understand a bit more uh, the technical challenges that you may face and things that, uh, and understand that building complex things requires some time and that you need to kind of get closer to how software and technology work so that you understand what you can commit to in terms of roadmap for your business and your product, right? So this is one side. And on the other side, the, the technical roles in the startup should understand a bit more uh, the business challenges and try to keep that in mind whenever they're trying to come up with their, like, you know, uh, their solutions. And there is an element of creativity that is specific to the startups because developers in a startup environment, they need to come up with creative ways of uh, coming up with solutions for problems that, are, uh, that look big, uh, but you need to find a solution for that is uh, kind of smart and creative, right? So uh, the technical roles in the startup need to find ways to uh, to find the right solution, the solution that would give 80% of the value and 20% of the effort, right? 
And this is something that requires some experience and I would say some creativity that some technical roles and startups lack. So uh, the, the push towards engineering perfection may cause some delays in the business delivery because just we, we as engineers don't necessarily understand that maybe the business doesn't want the, per the perfect solution. They want a solution that would work for an initial delivery, but then they are open for refining it further in the future. So this creativity in finding technical solution is a challenge uh, in a startup uh, environment. The second, I would say, uh, reason uh, for failure, and I'll be very honest here, is that there is, until now, and even surprisingly so, uh, an element of lack of appreciation of the strategic uh, dimension of the technology in a tech startup. Like I've seen a lot of uh, situations where the CTOs or the technical co-founders of startups are not incentivized properly in terms of uh, equity within the, the startup. And I think that this is a major problem because if the CEO or the business doesn't see the strategic dimension of the technology, then there is an issue on the long term because they will obviously fail in identifying the level of investment uh, that is required in terms of finding the right people to add to the team. So there is an element of educating the business owners and the CEOs and to the importance of the technical, uh, of the technical profiles in their, uh, in their company. This is the second, I would say, most common issue because I, I've had a lot of uh, situations where uh, I've seen uh, CTOs leave or disengage after a certain period just because they feel they're not appreciated uh, at the right level from a strategic point of view. And finally, I, I think the least common issue, because your question is like both on the most common and the least common, the least common is lack of technical skills. Like I really have little seen or never seen a startup uh, fail just because they failed to build the product technically. Uh, most of the time there is some delay, you take some time in order to build the solution, but it's never a failure in technical delivery. Failures occur more on the market validation, maybe the market is not mature enough, maybe our view on the customer needs were not the right ones, but it's never a technical uh, failure in my opinion. So speaking of finding the perfect candidate or a suitable candidate, and your, also your role in UK Tech Hub was finding the suitable candidate for the startup to help them accelerate forward. What the requirements you would see in a candidate that deemed as suitable? Since there's a good portion of like job descriptions that say oblivious things, uh, in a sense that they want a candidate that can do multiple things for a basic role for a company. So you see those posts on LinkedIn that they need some guy who is the entire team in one post, yeah. those kind of things. But what are the things you would see in a candidate that you would say, okay, this candidate fits to be in the role of this startup or in this company? Yeah, um, very good question. I, I mean, Technical recruitment is, uh, is a very deep uh, topic and it's something, by the way, that we as RAMs also offer for, for many of our customers. So we help them recruit the right candidates for their environments, whether it is a startup or a company. And I think uh, that it's probably one of the areas that where like, there is a certain need uh, in terms of identifying the right profile uh, at the beginning. 
because there is an element of oversimplification uh, from non-technical people uh, to the requirements uh, that are needed for, for getting the right candidate. As you said, uh, there are a lot of job descriptions that you can find on different job boards like LinkedIn and the rest where the expectations are just not uh, like, you know, possible to meet in, in a single person. Uh, so my first recommendation for, uh, for any uh, company is to get someone technical to review their profiles, right? Whether it is a consultant, it is a friend of the company, it's a, it's a developer within the company, have someone look at those things because it's not as simple as the old days, right? Like more and more the technical landscape is becoming... Uh, diverse, uh, there are different roles that are starting to emerge that didn't exist uh, in the, like, you know, um, 10 years ago and that are like very important roles uh, nowadays. So this is like the first element. I think you're, you're talking about this oversimplification, uh, I would say, in, uh, in, in, in some cases regarding finding the right, uh, the right talent. Uh, now, obviously, recruiting uh, for a startup is different than recruiting for uh, a large company, right? This is one. Recruiting for a junior role is different than recruiting for a senior role. So you have to take all those parameters into consideration. But since you mentioned, uh, uh, like, you know, startups in your question, I would say before going into the technical uh, discussion, there is an element of identifying the candidate that can accept the level of risk and instability uh, that surrounds the startup, right? So if you are recruiting someone for a startup, an early stage startup, you need to explain to them that the nature of the work would be dynamic, right? That the nature of the environment is not stable, that there is an element of financial risk and there is potential instability along the way. And they need to be comfortable with it. So you cannot get the guy that is so uh, risk averse to join an early stage startup, even if they are technically fit and they are a star programmer, they would probably fail just because of the level of pressure they may be exposed to. So there is this element that needs to be very clearly, I would say, communicated to the, uh, to the candidate or that, that, should, that the candidate should be tested against, right? Like you need to see if the candidate would be able to handle uh, this level of, uh, of potential instability, right? Even if they say sometimes that they are ready for it, it doesn't mean that they are, because sometimes they think they are ready, but you need to dig deeper during the interview process to try to know whether they are truly ready or not. This is uh, number one. And at that level, before I, I move on to the second point, I think we should avoid uh, overselling uh, the dream uh, of the startup environment. Obviously, you want the candidate to know what the product is about and to be excited about it. But at the same time, you don't want to be uh, deceiving them into thinking that this is going to succeed. You want them to be excited, but you don't want to be uh, overselling, right? So this is, this is, one, uh, this is one important uh, element in the recruitment process for early stage uh, startups. Now, in terms of a developer profile, uh, I think I would rather find someone uh, who's kind of willing to kind of hack things uh, the quick way and build things quickly, right? Like in a startup environment, it's all about the fast pace and like, you know, time is of the essence and you want people who are pragmatic, who kind of jump over like the opportunity to build something and just do it, right? 
I've seen some excellent people like, you know, not deliver as quickly in startup environment just because there is an element of perfection and like, you know, doubt about like whether we're doing this that would, and it would scale for, you know, a million users later on. And you see less competent people who are like, you know, uh, comfortable like putting a solution out there and seeing if it works for, you know, hundreds of users. And then as the problems of scalability start arising, they, they, uh, they kind of adapt to the situation. So there is this adaptability element that also the candidate and the developer should be tested on. Finally, uh, there's the technical component. You need people, again, that are problem solvers, that, you know, know the fundamentals of how uh, computer science works. And this is something that a typical technical interview can give you, and I think we can uh, dig deeper into that area. But there is more to recruitment than the technical component itself. There are also the additional things that we, we discussed. But uh, speaking of, let's say, recruitment, uh, there's a certain level of startups or company, they give this typical coding challenge where they like give you a, a link list and tell you to reverse it or to do those kind of like uh, I'm going to say computer basic, I would say computer science, uh, if I want to put it in the right term, it's it's like writing algorithms just to prove that you can do things on a technical level. But that doesn't mean you might not be a good software developer at a certain level. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've met certain software developers who can code an entire website easily, but they don't know how to do the basic uh, computer science like algorithm question solving yes. uh, is this supposed to like every single company should do this or they should supposed to give you like questions to fit your need in the role so let's say for an example if you're applying for a web developer role you they would tell you to as an example to do a website that does one to three based on the languages that they use or based on the frameworks that they use or a certain way to see how you write code yes um yeah, it's a very good question, and it's not a straightforward answer again, but uh, I think there is an element of both, right? Uh, personally, and I'm talking about the personal style, but I know that uh, there are multiple perspectives into recruitment, and there are different, I would say, uh, approaches to achieving it. Personally, I think you want to test the person on what they know, right? Uh, so if they have a certain level of experience building websites and regardless of the technology that they use in building it, I would want to hear about their experience, about how they communicated, how confident they are about doing it, how clear they are about their contribution to it, right? Uh, because it's something that uh, they've built over time and you would also want to acknowledge uh, the effort that they have put into building this experience and to see what this effort like you know developed in them uh, in terms of communication in terms of confidence in terms of technical credibility and that's one part of the interview process that i always look at right i always start trying to understand the track record of the person and the technologies they've used and to see if it's something that reflects credibility and confidence right um, this is one component Personally, I'm also interested in their ability to change and adapt to, like, you know, evolving things, right? Uh, because even if I'm recruiting them today for developing websites, uh, in the future, the, the technology might change or they, we would 
potentially consider them in other areas other than building the website, potentially in areas where they have to deal, for example, with, I don't know, databases or, or, or things that are not necessarily things they were recruited for initially. So you want to see how the person thinks, right? If they are able to think in logical terms and break down things or they are able to potentially go and fetch the needed learning material and try to apply it uh, in a new context, right? Uh, so I think uh, there are multiple uh, things that you should look at during an interview, both things that are more tailored to the profile or tailored to the role, and things that are relatively a bit outside this, I would say, uh, standard frame, and that, that goes more into the creativity of the person and finding solutions. So a good example of this uh, interview process is like Amazon, where they offer you for the first exam a pure data structure exam. Then they shift towards a whiteboard question uh, showing how you can actually implement this from a software developer perspective. And then the behavioral, which is the non-technical, they would bring someone on the side. I think I've heard a rumor that they put like a psychologist or someone who starts watching you, who would see your body language, how you're moving, how you're answering the question to do certain actions. This makes sense in a big company, let's say like Amazon, because they have the luxury of affording this kind of setup and they cannot compromise for having a weak developer even if they have a good track record of writing code, some of them might not fit in what they want. Yes. But should like every single company also adapt to this or they should do I mean, a certain... maybe not all the companies would have um, kind of the same level of resources that uh, Amazon has, right? In terms of different people looking at the same candidate. Uh, but you could do more than one interview very easily. You could see the same person two or three times yourself or you can potentially ask someone on your team an additional person to look at their profile so i am like you know uh, very supportive of the idea of having multiple rounds of interview because um, sometimes the person doesn't give their uh, optimal performance in a specific interview uh, or they give a great performance in an interview but then in another context you would see them in a different uh, mindset uh, what counts for me is that it doesn't become a draining long process, right? Like it's uh, it's a matter of like going through, uh, I would say, the, the needed stages so that you get to know the person more and you build more and more trust uh, on their ability to fit in the environment. And this is both for, uh, I would say, the benefit of them because once they join, they would feel more comfortable working in the environment and for the company because they would know that the person is, is the right one. Uh, it's very hard to identify like you know all the angles uh, on the personality and the technical skills of the person from one uh, single interview. So I would recommend like you know multiple interviews and you can make each interview like you know uh, focused on a specific theme. Sometimes it can be technical, sometimes it can be on the soft skills. Uh, or you can like speak of all three layers every time. It depends on how you want to approach it. Okay. I'm going to shift the, pers the questions towards asking uh, on being a coach or a mentor. So you've worked as a tech leader, mentor and coach for the Nucleus Accelerator Program, which is part of UK Tech Hub's services when you were working with them. 
to help startups to move forward. What are the requirements for someone to be able to coach and mentor a startup? And does it depends on the years of experience or the use case the mentor has to pass to be qualified? So I'll, I'll give like a very shoddy example on this. You, you saw those people who say that they are like life coaches, even though they might be at the same age as mine. <laughs> they, they have like certain certification that gives them the ability to come up and give seminars on being a life coach. I don't think this is exactly the same with software. So can you elaborate more on this? Yeah, um, I mean, clearly, um, there is no formal qualification process for a mentor. Like, you know, you cannot attend the school or get a certification that would make you a qualified uh, mentor. I think the, the common thing that I see in successful uh, mentoring experiences is uh, the, the level of, I would say, credibility that the mentor has in a specific uh, area. So you would want someone uh, who reflects a certain level of accomplishment, who was able to achieve certain things in a certain area, and that, uh, and that is perceived as someone uh, who can give advice uh, to someone else, right? Um, so I would say the I wouldn't say the number of years specifically, but I would say the credibility of the experience and the validity of the experience would put them in a better place in providing advice to others. And here I'm, I I would want to draw the attention to a lot of aspiring mentors, like to pay attention to the advice that they give, right? Because it can have some very negative re, uh, like repercussion on on the lives of of other people, of the mentees, right? Um, so when you give advice to someone and they think of you as being like the source of truth or a very credible person, and you're, you're not really sure about the quality of your advice, at the end of the day, you're doing more harm than good. And as a mentor, your purpose is obviously to help other, uh, to help other people, right? So this is, it's very important not to jump on becoming a mentor just like, you know, for, for getting the label. It's more like to make sure that I feel confident about providing advice and I feel that I have an experience to share that is valid. Now, I would like to probably like separate between what a coach is and a mentor is, although the separation between them is not super clear uh, in, in general. But the way I, at least I perceive it, a coach is someone uh, who is training you on a specific skill, right? So they should understand the requirements that are needed for you to develop the skills. So I might have uh, like, you know, a coach who's coaching me, like for example, to play a specific uh, sport, right? Like it can be tennis or football, and they know what the requirement to, to develop the skill is. A mentor on the other side is someone with whom you have a, a potential personal relationship. Like someone you would come to in order to get advice on a personal level like you would have a longer relationship with them that extends beyond the skill itself. Someone who asks you the question that can help you think through a certain situation that you are in. So this is, I think, the difference between both perspectives and what I think is the requirement to be a successful mentor. So I'm going to jump into a different question, which is uh, something that I usually see, is that you've worked at Murex for around 11 years. That's a lot of years. Uh, the level of discipline to stick in one company for more than 10 years indicates that the company that you're currently enrolled in 
does offer benefits that no other company offers. Judging by the fact that I know some people who worked at Murex stayed for a long period of time similar to yours, and the company's track record is quite marvelous. What did Murex provide you that you decided to stick with them for this long period, even though you might have received a decent amount of requests of offers to shift in your career while working in those 10 years? I mean, uh, clearly the, uh, the, the offering of Murex um, at the moment I graduated at least is, is pretty unique, right? Uh, you have a company that gives you a global uh, experience that is very relevant and that is world class um, and that is available for you out of your home country, right? And uh, this is a privilege to be able to work uh, with different cultures at uh, an international level in a stable environment, um, all of which, like you know, out of Lebanon, it's uh, it's really an opportunity that uh, that was unique uh, for uh, for any like you know uh, fresh graduate out of university, and this was kind of the initial uh, attraction uh, to the company. And obviously, after that initial attraction, there are a lot of elements that start adding up that would propel you from one year to the other. And I think the common thread would be you feeling that you are growing and learning, right? Uh, obviously, within those 11 years at uh, Murex, I didn't do one thing, right? Uh, it's, there, there are a lot of opportunities to, to change roles, teams, uh, context, and this, uh, I think, uh, means that you are from one uh, opportunity or one context to the other also being exposed to a new uh, set of skills and learning environments. So what was the most important element to me is that I feel that uh, I am surrounded with people who are helping me grow and the fact that I'm getting uh, a lot of learning and experience along the way. Even at the moment when I switched from Murex to the uh, UK Tech Hub, it was uh, it wasn't because I wasn't uh, feeling uh, like, you know, uh, positive about the experience itself because I was still learning uh, and I kind of became mature enough to understand that this is this industry is about the continuous learning. However, there was an element uh, in the experience at the Tech Hub that attracted me. Um, I felt challenged by it. I felt uh, interested by it and this is why I decided to like kind of to make the switch. Um, and to this day, I'm very appreciative to, to the experience uh, that I got at Murex, and it's definitely uh, the, the, the most uh, obvious reason why I stayed so long uh, within the company. But this kind of pattern of staying for, let's say, 10 years and then shift towards companies, some of them form companies or startups, some of them work with an existing startup, but most of them enter in like a CTO or tech lead level. This is like a well-known pattern if, let's say, you're working at Google or Facebook, where they learn throughout the years, uh, writing scalable code on, on a very high level, unit testing and automation and all of that, and then leverage this expertise towards a startup or company. Why do people choose this kind of pattern where you stick for a company for this amount of time and then shift towards a startup or a company? Wouldn't it be better can someone shifts between multiple companies throughout, let's say, this year, or just stick with one company, learn everything, and then leverage it in a new company? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't. I, as, as you said, this is one pattern, but it's not the only pattern, right? Uh, there are a lot of people that 
kind of change like every two, three years. Um, I think there is also a cultural component uh, that gets established in specific uh, areas. Like uh, I know like when I, when I uh, went to Silicon Valley, a lot of developers, like they say that the average, like, you know, they wouldn't stay for more than two, three years in a specific environment and it's healthy to switch. However, and this is like in their environment and other environments you would see the pattern that you just described. Um, I think in this pattern specifically, I feel that there, there may be a certain internal, um, uh, I would say, drive from the person uh, to kind of take things to the next level, like try to move out of your comfort zone and try to ha build something of your own that can scale and that can, uh, you know, um, that you can nurture uh, into the different levels uh, of success. And not all the people, like you know, are, are comfortable with this uh, because the, the success is not guaranteed at the end of the day, right? Uh, but I feel that sticking around in the same company uh, gives you enough depth in terms of experience to understand what it would require to, like you know, build also a company that can last, uh, like you know, uh, for for years and that can be also grown with, uh, with other uh, team members. So I think they would want probably the, the level of depth in the experience and the level of responsibility that they can potentially replicate in a, in a company of their own. So I'm going to shift the question towards individuals who are trying to apply for jobs. Uh, this is something that we're seeing much more these days that they're, tr they're trying to apply for a job, they fail to enter due to either lack of experience or lack of social skills, or there's a gap in their career, let's say, as you said, they every two years they need to shift to a company. This kind of like a, a red flag for some companies that they care to have an employee that stick around for a while, but the, this kind of employee doesn't stick around more than, let's say, two years, or they constantly shifting in their career. We moved from one startup to another startup, this kind of raises a red flag. What do you recommend for those people to do and to focus on having a healthy reputation for an upcoming job offer? I mean, uh, I think the, any, any experience uh, should like, you know, be deep enough for people uh, to, like, you know, to recognize you as someone who's given a certain uh, objective in your career, uh, enough time to like you know to conclude right uh, it doesn't reflect well um, on your personal uh, achievement if you are leaving things midway and people have the impression that you don't stick around long enough for you to at least uh, build a certain uh, credible foundation uh, where you were right uh, obviously there are situations where people would be potentially uh, and in an understandable way switching from one opportunity to the other. So you have to analyze the pattern. I, I, I cannot say that uh, there is a general uh, rule uh, that would say like if you're switching job every two, three years, it means like, you know, you have, you're not loyal or you're not, uh, you're not a person that someone should recruit or it's a red flag. But it means you have to understand a bit more what is the person trying to achieve? What is the driving element of their change or of their jump so that you try to understand whether the, you can give them uh, something that fits to their like you know uh, type of needs and uh, like what they're trying to achieve uh, my advice like to anyone like you know to always try to like you know uh, 
maintain a healthy learning momentum uh, and also stick around to achieve enough of a business goal and objective so that they feel that they are accomplishing. Otherwise, even if the change comes with a certain level of reward, whether it is financial or in the title or whatnot, like it doesn't really matter because it's, it's not something that you would feel personally satisfied with. I always end the podcast with a mental health question. That's kind of a thing that I like to do. Uh, you've been working in the tech space for around 15 years. Do you ever face with burnout or imposter syndrome? Do you ever face like frustrations in your career that you resolve to take a break or a hiatus? Usually, I've, I usually like to ask mental health questions at the end uh, because it's kind of like the sensitive, um, emotional kind of question that's not always technical. Uh, I faced imposter syndrome and burnouts a lot, even though I'm quite early in my age. Some people face it much more tougher than I do. Uh, would you like to highlight on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's a very important topic, obviously, a topic that I, of course, relate to. Um, I think I was lucky enough to not to basically go through a, a burnout in the true sense of the term. Uh, but obviously, I've been through periods of high pressure where, like, you know, the level of stress would increase and I would feel like, you know, okay, this, this is potentially more than what I could handle. However, uh, with experience, you kind of, um, kind of try, uh, accept this more and more and become more proactive in managing it, right? Uh, so I do a lot of proactive planning for my projects and the type of work that I do. And uh, I try to do that because I would identify beforehand the high-pressure period that is coming. And I think a lot of the burnout situation that I've been uh, like exposed to, like to like you know potential mentees of mine or uh, members of my team, is people not uh, being prepared for the level of pressure that they will be exposed to in a week or two, and then uh, they are caught in a situation where like you know okay, this is a lot of pressure and I'm not prepared for it and I just like, you know, eventually uh, burn out and you need to support them. A lot of those things can be avoided if you take a proactive attitude and plan the workload uh, ahead. A lot of the, uh, those things you need to be trained on. They don't come naturally. Uh, and this is where mentorship can help. This is where trainings can help. Trainings in the space of like, you know, how to properly prioritize your work, how to properly manage your time, uh, how to plan for periods of high pressure and how to seek help. Uh, I think a lot can be done in trying to prevent uh, uh, burnout and there is a lot of room for training and support for the young people that are not potentially as experienced in, in managing those situations. On the other side, for the imposter syndrome, I mean, Obviously, I'm, I wouldn't say I, I suffer from, from the syndrome itself, although I, I relate to it also, and I've seen people on my team not appreciating the level of skill they have and being potentially intimidated by people who are potentially less skilled. I, I've seen this. Uh, I would say I was more uh, in places where I, I wasn't aware, or I wasn't confident uh, that my skills were relevant. Like, I knew that I am trying to learn something new, for example, let's say I'm learning closure. At some point, I'm not sure whether the experience that I have can be considered as a, like, you know, 
as uh, as valid or or like you know credible enough or not so sometimes it took me more time than i should to realize that i am more expert in a certain area but not because i'm uh, i lack the confidence or i have like you know uh, the imposter syndrome more like because i didn't know uh, where the where i crossed the line between being a beginner and being an intermediate or then be, being an, an expert and i feel there uh, a lot can be done from the managers of the individual like you know trying to help them and applying techniques uh, i'm a big fan of a technique called situational leadership where the leader would help uh, the the collaborator in understanding that they are going through the different quadrants of a lear- uh, of a learning experience and uh, i feel that like you know uh, i've been through situations where i didn't know that i became more proficient and uh, where I, I was still behaving like a beginner and then eventually i i realized it and tried to correct it